0: CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. And so we come to the end of another week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going to take a step back from our usual discussions of political headlines today so that we can revisit a conversation I had late last year with author Gerald Walker. His most recent book, How to Make a Slave and other essays, was a finalist for a National Book Award for nonfiction last year. It's Walker's third book, the first two being memoirs of his early years. Street Shadows, a memoir of race, rebellion, and redemption, was named a Best Memoir of the Year by Kirkus Reviews. And The World in Flames, A Black Boyhood in a White Supremacist Doomsday Cult, was his description of growing up with his family as the only black members of the segregationist Worldwide Church of God. As you'll hear, we'll talk a bit about that strange experience in our discussion. I want to note that we're replaying this show during Black History Month. It's an annual period of time that I have to admit, in a lot of ways, baffles me. I think that's because it seems to me that choosing a limited time frame to pay special attention to the accomplishments of Black Americans doesn't make a lot of sense. Real respect should come from our including the work of African Americans in culture, politics, and civic life all year long, which is what we do try to do here on Political Rewind. And while I didn't ask him about this, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that Gerald Walker feels the same way. Walker's a graduate of the prestigious Iowa Writers' Workshop. His work has been published in numerous literary magazines, including the Harvard Review, Mother Jones, The Oxford American, and more. His writing has been included five times in the annual Anthology of the Best American Essays. And he's a professor of writing at Emerson College in Boston. How to Make a Slave is a collection of essays in which Walker describes, sometimes in unexpected ways, his experiences moving through both the black and white communities. Some of the essays are funny, others searing in their acknowledgement of racist stereotypes, and some puncture what those of us who are white think we may understand about how black people experience bigotry. In a glowing review of the book, the New York Times called the essays restless and brilliant. Walker and I talked in mid-December. Here's our conversation. Gerald, I am so grateful to uh, you for spending time with us on the show today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation, Bill. I'm happy to join you. Um, So let's start with something that you and I have in common. uh, We're of different generations. I'm older than you are, but we both essentially are from Chicago. But the Chicagos that we grew up in might as well have been completely different cities. I grew up just north of the city in Skokie, Illinois, uh, and then moved to the north side of the city itself. You're a south sider. We have very different experiences of what Chicago was, don't we? We do. We do. And I I think there were traces of your version of Chicago
1: um, in my neighborhood when my family first moved there back in 1970. Um, It was... It's the area called South Shore. It was probably 99.9% white, middle class. My family was the second black family in the neighborhood. The other black family lived next door. And um, within a 10-year a span, uh, pretty much every white family had moved out of that community. And um, the economic base collapsed. And it was uh, soon to be one of the most notorious inner-city slums mm-hmm. um, in the history of this country.
0: Um, you talk a lot about your experiences of growing up in uh, in a uh, an inner city neighborhood. You call it a ghetto in the book. By the way, is ghetto an acceptable word these days? Until I'm told to stop, I'm going to keep using it. <laughs> 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 right. Yeah, but but you're but you're black and I'm white, and I wonder if it, coming out of my mouth it's different than coming out of yours.
1: No, I think. Well, I I think um, this this is a democratic program. I think we should both be able to use the same language for uh, for for these experiences. Okay. So you're you have you have the I, green light for me to use it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So let's let's start talking about uh, your experience. Um, as I said, by the way, and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because there's so much to unpack in terms of the essays, but. Your two memoirs, you write about a remarkable way in which you grew up. You you were black and poor on the south side of Chicago, and yet your parents joined a doomsday cult uh, run by uh, Herbert W. Walker, a white, essentially racist, who believed the end of the world was coming in 1972. And you say at one point in one of those memoirs, it was really confusing. You're confused all the time. I can imagine that would have been the case. <laughs> it, it, well, it was a pretty confusing thing. Not at the start, though, because, um, you know, as you know, when
1: you're born into a religion, mm-hmm. it all makes a complete sense. Uh, it's not until you get a little older, you look around, you realize that you're the only uh, family uh, that you know who believes the world is going to end in a few years. And um, also, we, there weren't a lot of black people in this in this. This cult—it It it is, in fact, a cult. Um, And the founder of it, Herbert W. Armstrong, believed that the world, in uh, 1972, Jesus Christ would return, and the people who had been chosen, such as my family, would be taken to a place of safety while um, the world fell to chaos and and ruin for three years. And in 1975, Christ would return and say, for the rest of you, here's your chance. Uh, I'll save you if you come with us. And my family, by being one of the chosen ones, would be sort of supervisors over to people who uh, had come to the calling uh, at this final opportunity.
0: Um, And you you say that facing Doomsday as a young boy, um, you you had mixed feelings about it. First of all, your parents were blind, um, and they were promised the return of their sight when when, uh, the world, following the end of the world, and so you had sort of these ambivalent feelings I think about being afraid of the end of the world, but also recognizing that your parents were going to receive a great gift uh, as a result right. of it all.
1: Exactly. Well it was a good news, bad news situation. <laughs> so the the good news yeah. is that <laughs> the, the, the good news is that when the world ended your parents would be able to see and they could see their six children for the first time. And uh, uh, the bad news is that the world was ending. Oh. And so you um yeah. you, you have to take <laughs> you have to take one with the other. And so um, it was. A, it was a confusing thing. It was a scary thing. Even though, I mean, if you're promised as a kid that the world's going to end, but it's going to be a perfect place when that happens, and um, famine will be gone, wars will be gone, everything's going to be at peace. But it's a scary thing to imagine the skies opening, and um, uh, uh, you know, Christ and God and. Whatever else descending, um, it, it, regardless of the good things you promised, that's a frightening prospect. And I recall that every time there was an intense thunderstorm, I would think, this is it. This is it. And um, I, it didn't <laughs> happen. It, it never happened.
0: So – I wanted to I wanted to talk just a little bit about that story because it strikes me at least that all, growing up with that sort of prepared us for understanding about you that you view the world uh, in complex ways your your philosophies of life the way you would see race black race white race. Um, is is more complicated, I think, than uh, many other people's. And I have to tell you that I believe that How to Make a Slave and other essays is truly essential reading in 2020. And and I think it is not not because you have some linear way in which you lay out uh, the path to racial reconciliation and racial justice, but for just the opposite reason, because you make us aware of how complex our thinking, both black and white is, about race fair enough statement Uh, well it is it is fair and i think um that's because
1: a lot of a lot of white people find race confusing and i'm here to tell you a lot of black people find it confusing too and we're we're struggling trying to figure out how to make sense of it um what's the best approach to deal with people who have different um experiences different 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 culture different beliefs and um i i recall that when george floyd was murdered during the summer, uh, there was a big run on black bookstores, and everybody was trying to find black books to get the answers for this stuff. I, I hope they found them, but I, I, I suspect not because a, a lot of this is um, it's, it's a puzzle, and we simply don't have all the pieces at our disposal, or we don't know which pieces fit which spots. There's they're not as neat as we would like to believe. So I, I have some answers in my book, but I have probably more questions.
0: So um, let's talk about uh, a couple of the seminal moments in your life that you recount in Essays in the Book. Uh, you were selected to uh, be a student at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. For people who aren't familiar with it, it's probably the single most prestigious writing program in the country. It is a, uh, uh, it's a program that is, is long on discipline, making sure you, are, uh, you know your craft— uh, well. Uh, it, it challenges the thinking of the students who are part of it. And you went through a real uh, transformation in terms of how you viewed your childhood, uh, it, it, using your your experiences as you grew up on the south side of Chicago, um, and how you learned you had to think more uh, supplely and in, in more, uh, again, complex terms about Uh, what your personal experience had had been. Talk to us a little bit about the man who turned your thinking around, who you've dedicated this book to, James Allen McPherson.
1: Uh, Yes, the book is dedicated to James Allen McPherson. Uh, He turned my thinking around, um, but he did it by first destroying my old thinking. And that happened when I was a student in his, uh, his workshop. And the thing about McPherson, for anyone who knows him or knew him, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he was a very quiet guy and he would have these workshops where sometimes for the entire two hours, he wouldn't say a word. And I was disappointed in that when I had my first class with him. I thought this guy, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, a MacArthur genius, and uh, he doesn't speak a whole lot. And then when it was time for my first short story to be worked he had something to say. Um, he told the class, um, there are a lot of gangster rappers who like to rap about inner cities and ghettos. But they're writing about something that they have no personal experience with. And then McPherson reached into a paperback. He pulled out a magazine that had a gangster rapper on the cover. He was dressed in the the gold chains and the whole outfit that you see rappers wear. And McPherson said, this person raps about the ghetto, but he doesn't live in the ghetto. He lives in a white, wealthy suburb uh, with his family. This person is selling out his community for personal gain. And then McPherson put the magazine away. He picked up my short story and said, "This writer is doing the exact same thing." And I was, <laughs> I was, I was devastated. And I was—we were only two black people in the classroom. And after McPherson said that, he said, "Okay, everybody, you can discuss it now." And everybody tore into me for the next two hours. And I was so angry about that that I did not <laughs> sleep that night. I called McPherson. I, I demanded to have a conference with him. I met him in his office. And I told him, I'm writing about my people, my community, my experiences. I am not selling out um, anyone for anything. You were wrong about me. And then he got upset, and he stormed from the room, and he he was chased by the the director of the program. And they finally calmed him down, and he came back in to talk to me. And he said the thing that would change um, the trajectory of my entire writing career and even worldview. He told me, stereotypes are valuable, but only if you use them to your advantage that they introduce readers to what appears to be familiar territory. But once they're in that territory, you have to move them beyond the stereotype. You have to show them what's real. And I asked, what's real? And he said, you. And I didn't know what he meant by that, but I thought about it for a long time. And I went to see him, and he worked with me for two years studying. And what he wanted me to see was um, for me to make it out of that community on the south side of Chicago, and for African Americans to endure 400 years of the brutalization of slavery and to come out of it, that by definition, we have to be more than the sum of that brutalization. And what I was doing in my short stories was focusing on all the the hardships and the evils of whites and everything that goes wrong for black people in this country. But I was not focusing on the strength and the resilience and the courage and, and all of the positive attributes that made it possible for someone like me to make it out of the inner city slums and before McPherson into the writer's workshop.
0: So that ended up having an enormous impact on your writing. I'm also curious how it impacted you as an individual in terms of did his, did his words uh, give you an empowerment that you hadn't felt before personally? Did it change your perspective on yourself as an African-American living in a largely white world?
1: Oh, it did, because it, 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 it allowed me to stop seeing myself as a victim um, and also to not accept pity from people who believe that I should be unhappy about my circumstances, I should be angry about my circumstances, and I should be bitter. When just the opposite of true is true, I have a lot to be uh, proud of, a lot to be thankful for, and I um, am not a victim of anything. And I am not someone who is interested in or is seeking anyone's pity. And that's how I, I lead my life. It's, the, it's the, the, the theme of my material as a writer, but it's also my worldview. It, it changed the way I move through yeah. space and not just what I put on the page.
0: One of the most powerful essays in the book speaks to that uh, very directly in terms of how uh, you share that with white people who want to talk to you about your being a victim. The essay, Dragon Slayers, you tell us that you were at a Christmas party uh, and the husband of a fellow faculty member came up to you and told you that you should hate all white people and— your reaction was, Why should I hate all white people? He said, Well, because of slavery. And you went on to explain to him, I'm, I wasn't a slave myself. Uh, but there's a very, if you don't mind, I don't know if it works without reading it directly, but as you're talking, he says to you that all white people are your oppressors, and a wow. wo- woman walks by with a tray of canopies. What do you say to him at that moment? I actually have the passage right before me. Um, she
1: was holding a tray oh, of canopies. She offered me one. I asked the man if, as a form of reparations, I should take two.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the laugh-out-loud moments in your, your book. Um, but, but there is w- w- where it's so important that um, you tell us, and it is a theme of your work, um, that we cannot... Any of us, blacks or whites, uh, approach the black experience in America as only one of victimhood. Now, here's my question about that. Does that take, do you think that if white people like me read that, we take ourselves off the hook? As having been guilty of uh, uh, of of, of uh, bigotry, repression of blacks over the, how do we how do we do approach that and understand we still do in fact have a responsibility for what's happened to black people in this country?
1: Well, I mean, I think the thing about victimhood is that it, it, it kind of it, it it only really works if you um, if that's the only thing that you consider, if you think that this this one thing and this one treatment is the primary cause in my life being a certain way. Sure, whites have been guilty of many atrocities in this country, it happens all the time, it happens uh, on, a, on a daily basis, but that's not, that's not the sole defining trait of African Americans. It's one of many things that blacks have to deal with, just like whites have to deal with uh, a, a zillion different challenges and obstacles, but no one should be defined by, by one single thing um, that causes them difficulty in life. Racism is one, But it's not the sole one and it's not the thing that um, should be central to who we
0: how we define ourselves. So I want to share with you a personal experience that your essays on this subject really helped me think through in a way that I hadn't been able to before. So I moved to uh, Georgia a long, long time ago from Chicago, and I was a little uneasy about being in the Deep South um, because I'd watch the civil rights movement unfold. I knew about um, the history of racism in the South. I certainly understood what had happened to the extent that I was able to, to slavery. But, but when I came here, I had a hard time reconciling that dark past with an understanding of the great things that black culture... Was able, we, we found from black people living in those conditions in the South, black literature, black music, black foods, all of that worthy of great celebration, but hard to reconcile for me with that past in, in which such horrible things happened. And your writing about this really helped me put that together in a completely different way.
1: Well, and I think that goes right back to your prior question. Um, there's so much more to what it means to be an African-American. And um, most of that is what African-Americans have decided about themselves, not what whites have done to or decided about African-Americans. And so if you do, if you look at the culture, if you look at the music, the dance, the language, all the contributions blacks have made to this country, there is a tremendous amount to be proud of and um and happy about and thankful for as African-Americans that have absolutely nothing to do with some wrong that whites have perpetrated against the community.
0: All right, so again, that's a theme that runs through um, most of the essays in this book. If if, if it's okay with you, I'd kind of like to unpack some of the other um, moments in the book that really struck me and, and Amelia Brock, our senior producer, uh, read it, too. We talked about the book for more than an hour yesterday. We were uh, so fascinated by what we were learning. Um, first of all, why don't you tell us what How to Make a Slave refers to? Uh, how to Make a Slave the, the, is, uh, the, the, that it's, maybe.
1: Yep, it's... it's um, the line came from uh, Frederick Douglass, who uh, was, of course, a slave. And uh, at one point when his master was about to uh, beat him for, you know, how many, how many times has this happened in a slave's life, but he was about to beat Frederick Douglass for something, and Frederick Douglass had enough. And so he said, um, you have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. And he proceeded to beat his master half to death. Um, and that was the moment where he decided that I'm standing up, uh, even if it means death, that I will no longer allow someone to treat me less than a full human being. And, um, it's a, it's a good, it's a turning point in his life, and I think it's something that it would um, behoove uh, African
0: Americans to um, keep note of. Um, l- l- there was another turning point in your life that's addressed in um, an, an essay about a trip you made back to Chicago with both, you have two sons um, and your wife, and um, and uh, you talk about, you were going back for your mother's 80th birthday, and you were dismayed by the fact that she had chosen, in terms of her living in an, I think it's an assisted living facility, is that, is that basically what it, what it was? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So, you describe the experience of driving through the south side of Chicago, years after you had left Chicago, and the fear that you felt with your family for being in a neighbor in neighborhoods and especially the neighborhood where she had chosen to live that you knew to be dangerous and and we all know that Chicago has been just it, it's so sad for those of us who grew up there like you and I did to think about what's happened to the violence on the south side of Chicago but but you you know you you put it in a context that makes me realize uh, y- y- f- these fears are not just from White people going into neighborhoods they consider dangerous. You're, you and your family went through the same experience. Uh, we were horrified
1: at the prospect of returning to Chicago. And I think, I mean, a, a, a reason for that is um, we are not immune to what we see on television um, either. So we see the reports of gun um, violence in Chicago, of gang violence, of murders. It's on the news all the time. Donald Trump talks about it. Go to Chicago, you're going to get shot. And you see that. And so despite the fact that I was raised in this community, um, I also started to believe those stereotypes about the community. And I had forgotten that there was um, more than violence when I lived in that community. And I had a lot of positive experiences, mainly positive experiences. But I, I, you forget those things when you have a distance from that community. So I was afraid to go back much as anyone who had never experienced Chicago would be going to Chicago.
0: Um, And and so you went to this, uh, uh, as you were driving to this, you tell us in the essay, it brought you back to the moment. I was thinking about this other very important uh, uh, um, experience in your life, um, transformative experience in your life. When you were a young man on the search for um, some cocaine, uh, what happened?
1: Well, this... um um, it's, it's a longer story, of course, which is why I have the two memoirs prior to the essay collection. But, um, you know, you mentioned the, the cult that I was in. When I realized that the cult was a cult at the age of 14, uh, I left it. And the thing about having the one thing that you believed your entire life yanked from you is that you have this void that needs to be filled. And what was happening in my community at the time was a lot of drug use, a lot of alcohol use, a lot of gang use, and I felt susceptible to all of it. And so by the time I was 20 years old, I dropped out of high school at 16 years old. Uh, and I was drinking a lot, using lots of drugs, especially cocaine. And um, one day uh, when I was um, about in my early 20s, I um, received a phone call from a friend of mine who started selling uh, cocaine. And he asked if I wanted some, and I said yes, but I don't have any money. And so he said, come and I'll give you some on credit. And so I went to his place of business, and I had to go through a dark alley to get to his third floor apartment. And as I walked into the alley, some guy stepped from the shadows and put a gun to my head. And he said, give me your money. And I said, I don't have any. I'm here to buy drugs uh, on credit. And he searched my pockets, didn't find any money, told me to go up and get the drugs. And I went upstairs. And I saw my friend, and I said, hey, I was almost robbed downstairs. And we both laughed about it because that sort of thing was kind of common in that community. And so he gave me the drugs. I went back downstairs. Uh, The guy was gone, and I went to my apartment, and I proceeded to get high. 30 minutes later I received a phone call from a brother of mine saying our friend was shot. He was murdered. And what we found out later is that he'd been shot six times in the very spot where the man Mm. had attempted to rob me. And it was clear to me that at least one of those bullets was mine and that I easily could have been the person who had been gunned down in that alley. And so there I was, high on the cocaine of a dead friend. Uh, knowing that my life could have been taken just as easily as his, and I had a decision to make. I—that That is my future if I continue on this path. And I've got to see if there is something else out there for me other than a young death. And I went to my window in my 16, 16th floor apartment, and I opened it, and I dumped the cocaine out, the remains of it. Uh, and I have not used it since. <laughs> and that was... Um, and a few years later, after I, um, I had to struggle to try to figure out what, what can I do in this life, I, um, I went to a community college at the age of uh, 24 years old and uh, randomly took a course in creative writing, which also changed my life.
0: Which has completely changed your life and made you one of the most celebrated writers of essays in the country. Um, I got to get to a break in a minute, but I do want to tell you one thing that that your story about the drive through Chicago with your family reminds me of uh, and see what you think about it. Um, When I was about 20 years old, which was a long time ago. Uh, and, and I I, wa- I was determined to see James Brown live in concert, and I saw that he was playing at the Regal Theater, which is at 47th and what was then known as South Stoney. It became MLK yep. Boulevard. Uh yep. I that was that was a neighborhood look there are neighborhoods in Chicago that black people would have no interest in go would be afraid to go into and there were certainly neighborhoods of white people didn't think it was safe to go into and 47th and Stony was one of them but I was determined to go and I went down to a 6 p.m. family show on a Saturday (laughs) night thinking it was summer, it'll be light. And I ran into the theater, I sat down, and I lowered myself as low as I could (laughs) get in my seat. I was certain I was the only white guy in the theater. (laughs) But I, damn it, I saw James Brown, Gerald. (laughs) But what's fascinating, what's interesting is my fears and yours were not that different
1: not that different. As soon as you said 47th and Stoney, I thought I wouldn't go there. Are
0: you kidding me? I don't care.
1: I'm not not, not giving my life to James
0: Brown. Uh, uh, Oh, 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 (laughs) Gerald, I have to tell you, it was worth all of the sweat and fears I had. All right, we got to get to a break. We'll be back in a minute with more with Gerald Walker.
1: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
0: We're back on Political Rewind with Dr. Gerald Walker. He is the author of How to Make a Slave and Other Essays, which was nominated as a finalist for a National Book Award. By the way, the memoirs that we talked about a minute ago, one is called The World in Flames, A Black Boyhood in a White Supremacist Doomsday Cult, which sounds, I mean, I couldn't help but immediately think about Spike Lee's Black Klansman uh, when I thought about that one. Uh, And the the other book is uh, Street Street Shadows, which uh, tell you even more about his uh, uh, life. Uh, Gerald, there is an essay in in the book, Heritage Room, which to me uh, conjured up immediately the incident that caught national and really international attention in Central Park not that long ago when a birdwatcher, Christian Cooper was uh, out in a par- part of the park that was designated for bird watchers and confronted by Christine or Amy Cooper, who became a uh, public enemy number one when she uh, uh, showed a, uh, a, a an angry racist reaction to uh, his efforts to uh, get her to leash her dog. Um, you agree that, her- what you ex- experienced in Heritage Room really reminds you of that episode? Sure, it's the same sort of thing. It's the uh, almost instinctual
1: impulse of whites when they see uh, blacks uh, in a context that they uh, don't appreciate, which is to say showing some um, either not necessarily anger, but any kind of emotion that's, that's not uh, uh, positive in their view. And I was on a committee with a bunch of colleagues on a point. It was simply me arguing, as academics do, uh, about an issue. And one of my colleagues was so unnerved by my response that she had me removed from the committee. And about a year later, I saw her and I asked her about it. And she said, well, you were so angry. You balled your hands into fists and you leaned forward and you were breathing heavily. And I thought you were going to assault us. And I had done none of that. It was simply her seeing me in a way that tapped into her stereotypes of black men. And I pointed that out to her, and she um, denied that she had that reaction to me, and she felt so guilty about it that she lobbied to get me back on the committee, and then she did it again. So um, it's, it's, it's a stereotype that black men have to deal with on a regular basis, that if we're not laughing and joking, um, we're, we're, we're threatening. And that's, uh, it's a difficult thing to have to deal with on a pretty regular basis.
0: And the way you uh, talk about that episode of the book is when the confrontation happens again after you've been reinstated to the committee. She really, much like Amy Cooper in Central Park, she really lays into you in very angry terms publicly. Well, then she went for my job. <laughs> I mean, the first time was
1: simply to have yeah. me removed from her presence yeah. from the committee. The second yeah. time was to end <clears throat> my career, um, which is you know kind of a death. So, so she, wanted me, she wanted me unemployed because I dared, um, push back against her. And, and I, I did the second time. I actually got angry. But as I say in that essay, that black Americans have a right to that emotion like everyone else, but just because we get angry, it doesn't follow that we're about to be violent. And that was the point I wanted to get across uh, to her uh, and to the piece. And I hope she, I hope she reads this piece.
0: You know, uh, we're, we're used to hearing stories about the uh the the bad old seg days of the Jim Crow South where uh, black people had to be very careful about how they moved through uh, white the white world in those days don't you know keep your eyes uh, down lower don't look people in the eye be very careful about how you approach a white woman if you ever approach her at all but your book has has modern versions of that that come out of heritage that are similar to heritage I it's kind of amusing but not when you talk about what it's like for you to go into a Whole Foods <laughs> where women <laughs> routinely walk away from their carts with their purses lying on the cart.
1: <laughs> right, right. You're referring to an essay um, entitled Thieves, and it's um, the, anxiety, the anxiety-producing the anxiety experience of me going to those grocery shopping at this high-end uh, grocery <laughs> store. And every time I, I, I walk into the store and I, and I see these women, typically white women, shopping uh, midday, and that's something too to unnervous uh, people. There's a black guy out in public midday. Why isn't he working? Well, I'm an academic. Um, I'm I'm usually around midday. So anyway, I mean, um, I go to Whole Foods, and as soon as people see me, uh, white women with their um, their their produce in one hand and their cart a few feet away that contain their purses, uh, they see me and they all make a mad dash to uh, secure their belongings before I snatch them and run. That's the that's the response that I get. On a I, on a consistent basis, I'm I, if I walk past a white woman who is not attached to her purse in a grocery store, and if she doesn't lunge for it, then I'm almost tempted to to go back and repeat my steps so she can get it right. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, something, something must be wrong here. Doesn't she know? She knows this. Did, did she not? Did she not see me? Was okay. I moving too fast? I don't. <laughs> I should stop now. You need to get You, you, just... you see me coming.
0: <laughs> you have just given us a perfect example of what you accomplish in these essays. Um, you have found a way. I, You know, my question about Whole Foods is, how do you feel as a black man when you're considered a, a suspect all of the time? And, and you know, there's not really a good answer for that other than one of them that you've hit upon, which is you approach life with a certain amount of humor. You have told, a, and you've said in the book um, that humor is an important tool for black people to use in the face of uh, racist aggressions or even uh, just uh, ra- ra- racist moments that are much more subtle, like the Whole Foods experience, right? Right. Well, I mean, the humor is a necessary release valve for
1: African-Americans. And uh, you have to laugh about these things. And, it, and they are funny on some level. On some level, they, they're hurtful and they're annoying. Uh, but yeah. ultimately, um, they're, they're silly, and if you can if you can see them in that context, if you don't walk out of the store um, angry and and depressed, and this world will never change, but rather just laugh about the dumbness of the entire thing, um, then you become the victor in this situation. And um, I'm not saying that I'm immune to this stuff, that I'm some sort of superhuman, and these things just deflect off me, and I don't um, experience uh, some pain from them. But uh, usually my response is to uh, laugh them off and and move about my business.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it, you also say, it, I think it's in the How to Make a Slave essay itself, that uh, there's not enough humor in African-American history. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, um, that essay opens with me being a 10-year-old kid who's uh, required to do a school uh, project uh, to give a presentation on someone from Black history, and I choose Frederick Douglass. But I'm coming of age as a Black person, and I'm realizing, wait a minute, we were slaves. Like this is this is my this is my ancestry, and um, so that's kind of a depressing thing when you realize um, that this is this is the way uh, people um, see you as descendants of this this thing that happened, this bad thing. And um, and whenever you talk about black history, it's usually in in the context of some atrocity, some bad thing that happened. And I'm realizing as a young person, there's not a lot of funny stories from back then. You can't go back in black history and say, boy, wasn't that funny when it just doesn't happen? And I I also, just as a person who studied African American literature in college, um, I grew weary of reading novel after novel, book after book after book, and just coming away so depressed about everything that is negative about the black experience being the primary subject of these works. And so what I was determined to do with this book was to show that there are some funny things in the black experience and that black people always always find the humor in these tragic tragic situations. It's that combination of tragedy and humor that is probably one of the most identifying traits of African-Americans through
0: time. Uh, And I have to say, uh, you have a wicked sense of humor. I mean, (laughs) the the funny moments are really, really funny. Um, And one of them, I think, it's funny, but it's not. How do you pronounce the name of the haircut (laughs) (laughs) that you talk about in uh, your chapter on the the way in which your hair was cut as a young boy? Uh, Collision. was the name that
1: the barber gave it. Um, Our barber, and it's probably true of all barber shops in black communities, um, he would make up names for haircuts. And one of the names he made up was uh, Collision, which was simply a bald head. And uh, my dad would always choose the Collision because he didn't want black kids having hair for some reason, so I had to have my head pretty much shaved for the first 10 years of my life. Um, And then I finally uh, vowed I would never, ever how that happened again, and then um, as you find out in the essay, it happens again, quite by accident.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, We won't go into it, because I really want people to buy your book and read it. I will only say this, uh, Gerald. Your experience of the collision at a point later in your life, at an important moment in your life where you are appearing in a prestigious setting, cannot help but remind anybody who reads your book of what Rudolph Giuliani just went through in his infamous <laughs> news conference what? in which he melted in front of our very eyes would you agree I think I, I, I kind of I feel like we ought to give the audience a little bit
1: more of the story
0: all right go ahead to 18 save it. of course I was
1: trying to save it but they're 18 read the other 17 if I give away too much on this one um no read, no no you've got to read all of them <laughs> you got to read them. you got to read and there's some important details on this mm-hmm. one that i'll leave out but after i decided to never again um have my head shaved, i went to a barber when i was in my early 20s uh, i nodded off in the in the barber chair <laughs> and he proceeded to uh give me a collision he shaved my head against my wishes and so uh, i was pretty upset about that and i um uh later uh when I started cutting my son's hair, because I would never evolve to never go back to a barber again, and that meant that I couldn't take my son's, and so I, I cut the hair. I still cut the hair. They're 18 and 20 years old, and I still cut the hair. I'm an expert at it now. I've been doing it for 20 years, <laughs> four, 40 years now. Um, uh, so one day uh, I, was, I gave my boys a haircut, and um, it was, this was the eve before me giving my first um, big reading at a major literary conference. I'd been invited to. It was the next day. And I started to give myself a haircut, and the uh, clipper guard fell off, and the uh, clippers slid right across the (laughs) crown of my head and made a big bald streak (laughs) right on the eve of the presentation. And uh, I was uh, horrified, and my wife and my kids ran into the, the room, and they saw what happened, and my, my wife said, Daddy's giving himself a collision, and my boys thought it was a So <laughs> Anyway, I had to go to this conference, and I had to do something about this, and so my first impulse was to, put, to go the roof Giuliani method and um, to put black shoe polish on the bald spot in my head. My wife <laughs> thought that was a bad idea, so we decided the compromise was black mascara. And so I put black mascara on my head. I went into this room, which was extra humid, extra hot, and I was convinced I was convinced that my uh, mascara would start running down the side of my head just as I approached the podium.
0: Yeah, hence the Rudolph Giuliani comparison. Uh, thank you for sharing that story with us. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and we'll be right back with Gerald Walker.) We're talking with Dr. Gerald Walker about his book *How to Make a Slave* and other essays, which I'll repeat. I truly do believe is essential reading in this year in which we are trying to figure out uh, racial reconciliation, um, racial justice. Um, and 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 Gerald, we've we've focused the last segment of the show on the, some of the funny moments in your book, but. Uh, but this is also serious stuff. Um, and one example of that, I think, and, and it's particularly pertinent to our listeners across the state of Georgia, is your essay essentially on Wayne Williams. Uh, you talk about watching that case from afar. You talk about your stereotypical notion of the kind of serial killer who would uh, go after young black boys and, uh, and and your response, your reaction when you uh, learn that Wayne Williams Is a black man and you you basically say to us um, I couldn't imagine that that was the sort of crime black people could commit right that's
1: true Um, it was was inconceivable and one of the things that um, black people discussed often when I was growing up was that there are two types of crimes Uh, there's crimes that everybody commits and then there's the deviant stuff that white people commit and we simply could not conceive of ourselves as doing the type of murders uh, that would help us be um, on the list of people with, like, uh, serial killers. And um, believing that Wayne Williams was guilty of this was a, was a difficult pill to swallow for blacks because we simply didn't believe that we could be that kind of evil. And one of the conclusions I reached um, in that essay and just thinking about the entire topic was that in concluding that blacks could not be that evil... We were also therefore saying that there was a cap on how good we could be, that we have to accept that Mm -hmm. African-Americans are uh, susceptible to the whole range of human behavior if we are to be considered Mm -hmm. the whole of a human person. And so we are capable of committing those types of atrocities, and we are on the opposite end capable of committing uh, great acts of of good and
0: and, uh, kindness. So another thing that that essay made me think about in my life is essentially what you're, you know, you're, you're basically saying, oh, my God, it was a black man who committed these crimes. That's terrible. I'm Jewish. Whenever there is an attack on a mosque in the United States, I, I guarantee you the first thing the Jews all say to themselves and probably to their families, oh, please, please let it not be a Jew. It's a very similar kind of uh, reaction. It is. It is. And I think um, at some point, and I think we're getting
1: closer to this, um, at some point, African-Americans have to not accept responsibility for uh, bad behavior of other African-Americans. You just, you you, you can't do it. And I think uh, when I was growing up, certainly whenever you'd hear about some crime, a bank robbery or a murder, and the evening news would flash his black face and we would all go, oh no. And because that, Blackface may as well have been ours. That you, you, as as black people, you are often assigned the bad behavior of the worst of your group, and yet you never really get the credit for the good behavior, uh, but you do get the credit for the bad behavior. Uh, but I think that that has that has lessened over time. I don't I don't feel that as much as I did when I was growing up. But it still it still happens. When these bad things go down, you you don't want it to be a member of your group. You just don't.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to turn your attention just for a minute here to, um, to the Senate uh, uh, runoff election that we're having here in the state of Georgia, and specifically to the race being run by uh, Democrat Raphael Warnock, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Um, at 538, the political uh, website posted an essay yesterday that I thought was really fascinating. Warnock has put out two ads uh, in which he's shown with his little beagle. Uh, In one ad, he's walking the beagle down the street and he cleans up some uh, poop from the the beagle. Um, But it's been it's the the point has been made that he is not only trying to counter the incredibly negative campaign being run against him by uh, Kelly Loeffler. But it also changes a stereotypical view of what how white people see blacks. This is a beagle. It's not a pit bull. It's not some mean, aggressive dog. And and I wonder what you're it's an interesting essay. And Sam, why don't we see if we can post it on the uh on our on our social media platforms? Uh does that resonate for you? I, I haven't seen the essay, but I have seen the ad. I think the ad is brilliant. Yeah. And um and
1: I, and it's it's yeah. it's it it almost goes back to um, to me in Whole Foods. I mean, you see this thing, it's ridiculous. He could have reacted with anger and he could have been upset and uh, but he made fun of her. He, he ridiculed her. And it kind of it, does, it accomplishes two things. It refutes the, the claim, but it also shows that he's capable of rising above it. We don't have to get all uptight and angry about these things. We can mouth it off, call it for what it is, absurd, and then um, think about the larger issues.
0: Um, we've got just a few minutes left. And um, again, it's sticking with this theme that not everything that you write about is funny, at all, although you use humor brilliantly, um, your, your your essay Re- race stories—it's um, another example of you facing a racist incident uh, at the college at which you teach, at Emerson. Uh, I think it was at Emerson that this happened. It was, um, Yes. You, you're you don't, without going into detail. You're essentially you're on your way to a faculty dinner, uh, faculty members uh, of color, as you you say, um, and a security guard stops you, says you're suspicious. Um, this is another example of racial profiling, but I think what matters most about it is, um, the last line of this essay, and it's something that Amelia Brock really found, um, important. You, you say, talking about these stories of profiling, everyone knows how race stories like these begin after all, but we do not know how they will end. That is a, really evocative and important statement, it seems to me, especially as we look at the George Floyds, the Ahmaud Arbories, um, and the, the, the year that we've gone through uh, in, in which uh, uh, blacks have been, in fact, killed in confrontations with law enforcement. What does that line mean to you? It means that these things can turn on a dime. That I
1: um, walked away from the security guard who stopped me and I went to my meeting I could easily have been headed to the morgue. Um, you just—you don't know. We—we we, black—black males are stopped by police uh, on a much too frequent basis. Um, often, usually, we walk away from these things, but sometimes we don't, and it's a crapshoot. So you don't—you don't know how these things will end, and you always have to take that into account uh, as a black person when you try to navigate your way through them.
0: As, as First of all, as we come to close, two questions. Number one, what are you working on right now? Do you have a series of essays? Do you have a, a larger project you're working on? I think our listeners would love to know what's next for Gerald Walker.
1: I'm in essays through and through, and so my next book already underway is another collection of essays.
0: I, I've got to tell you, one of the things, in one of the reviews I read of your book, people compared your work to George Saunders, who has been a guest on this show and who's one of the most fascinating thinkers I've ever had the privilege of talking to, and it strikes me that being compared to him is uh, an honor for you as well. Uh, well it's, I think
1: it's probably only an honor for me, so that's that's pretty great. That's a great, great, great positive way to in uh, to this in this of tra- 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 this conversation. He's one of my heroes.
0: Uh, it, it, yeah, he mine too. And we are at, coming uh, uh, to the end of the conversation. But one last question, and we don't have a lot of time. Are you hopeful? Is this year uh, leading us in the proper direction to tr- we're not to finding some some racial justice moving forward? I am hopeful, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I'm hopeful because I owe it to my
1: children and my children's children to be hopeful and optimistic, just as my <laughs> slave ancestors owed it to to me to be optimistic about um, what would come of them, and they were.
0: Gerald Walker's book is How to Make a Slave, a collection of essays that was selected as a finalist for the National Book Awards in Nonfiction last year. We talked with him this past December. Earlier in our discussion, I mentioned to Gerald my experience many years ago of being perhaps the only white person in the audience for a James Brown show at Chicago's black music mecca, the Regal Theater, which was located in a neighborhood known as Bronzeville on the city's south side. I don't remember just when I saw that show, probably in late 1969 or 1970. James Brown was in his prime at that point. I had a seat in the second row and remember it to this day as one of the most electrifying live events I've ever been lucky enough to attend. So what better way to end a show we present during Black History Month than to listen to James Brown singing the song that became his iconic stage show finale. Please, please me. And oh, did you ever, Mr. Brown. That's it for us today. We'll be back again with a new show on Monday. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and wear a mask, or maybe two.